0: They're hitting me with some hard questions. They're bringing some amazing advice. And and I'm telling you, I take notes from every one of these episodes from these people that have actually lived it. They've gone through it and have turned their businesses into amazing empires. So I hope you find a ton of value in this. And I hope that this becomes something you come back to and listen to often. They focused on runners and runners in particularly when they run a marathon they're not thinking about the finish line they pick a spot down the way and they run to that spot and so i started he started you know going down this huge massive study on that if people will focus on the next milestone or that next target versus that end goal Now you've got little boxes almost that you can check. Okay, cool. We got here. What's my next milestone? What's my next smaller step to get to that allows me to keep trudging forward so that the big goal doesn't actually overwhelm you, demotivate you and the likes. And I've, And I really like this line of thinking.
1: And working with clients, it's always been, and and that's what I have them do too, it's iteration. You know, because I do digital marketing, email automation, sales automation. It's all, all right. All right. So we start here and then we add and we keep adding on more stuff and evolving and building out and creating new things. You know, because that's the number one issue I face when clients want to do automation. It's like, oh, I want to build this big thing. No, let's build this little thing first. Everybody has a different definition
2: of what progress and success looks like. And if we can all in the organization stack hands over the same thing, this is how we're going to measure whether we're winning. It could be revenue. It could be numbers of clients. It could be repeat clients. It could be, I'm just talking business terms, but as long as we all agree on what that is, then you can boil it down into, let's do a little bit better tomorrow than I did today by looking at the things I'm trying to do. If today I made 10 sales call, let's make 12 tomorrow, right? Or let's make, you know, whatever. If the la- if you start stringing good days like that together, and that's how you really move your, your organization forward.
0: So I've never been on a podcast where the host was literally freaking grilling on the grill and talking to me at the same time but that's what happened when i was on the slow smoke podcast with jared morgan man that dude literally was cooking chicken now i, I don't know that he cooked it right but but he was at least giving him one hell of a go so we're bringing on jerry today to be a hell of a conversation a lot of fun and you know jared the biggest thing that i want to know from you is you know uh, my business has been a series of breaking things, screwing things up to figure it out. You know, uh, and I don't know you've got a kind of a history in there. How does someone actually figure it out what their next move is and then figure out the process and steps along the way to get there?
2: Yeah, well, it's good to be here. And by the way, the, my, my cooking skills are a great example of what I'm about to say, which is it's, it's okay to suck at something, uh, for a while, <laughs> as long as you're trying to make forward progress. Um, You know, I'm a big believer in um, problem solving is an essential skill of, of being able to move things forward. And every successful person that I've ever met is a great problem solver and they can, they can figure out and they can boil things down into a series of little codes that we got to crack or answers that we got to figure out. And at the end of the day, sort of every business can be boiled down into a problem set that you've got to work your way through. And so I think that, um, When you look before you start a big project or you're just starting, you can get overwhelmed by the amount of things that need to be done and you know hills that need to be charged. But if you just sort of boil it down into a series of problems, you can start to make progress. I have a saying that I say on my show, Slow Smoke Business, all the time, which is progress over perfection. And I can't tell you how many people I meet that are frozen in place because they can't imagine putting something out that isn't as great as this other thing that they see someone doing that's been doing it for a long time. An example of me. So for my podcast, you know, when I started this thing at first, I got really, uh, intimidated by looking at podcasts like yours, you know, Joe Rogan and all these other podcasts that are just, you know, really well done and really boiled down into what they're supposed to be. You know, forgetting that it takes hundreds and for Rogan, thousands of episodes to have gotten that good. And it's it's really about putting something out, iterating on it, like looking at it. Did that work? Did it not work? How well did it work? And then doing it again and just learning each time. That's really been my uh, kind of my secret to progressing in my own career.
0: Well, you know, watching Kevin's journey as we've been working together for damn near five years now, you know, I got to say the dude's come a long way from the idea of shit's got to be perfect because he's very much built that things have got to be perfect. Um, You know, so this this is a good topic for him to hear. So dude, dude feel free to lecture and teach his ass.
2: We got to get um, Kevin sitting on the couch and the therapy couch and talking about it. I mean, Kevin, look. You uh, you you're an impressive guy, and but I would imagine that very few moments in your career can you point to something that the first time you picked up the bat and swung it was a home run.
1: Oh God, no! There was there was never any of that. So every time I touch the bat, yeah, no. <laughs> home run, Dottie. Dottie no, 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 one wants to hear you about to hear about you doing that. So, <laughs> um, but no, it's but it's. it's You know, to Donnie's point, that has been a huge part of even as I grew my business, because I'm not just uh, Donnie's partner. I have my own thing, too. And working with clients, it's always been and and that's what I have them do, too. It's iteration, you know, because I do digital marketing, email automation, Mm -hmm. sales automation. It's all, all right. All right. So we start here and then we add and we keep adding on more stuff and evolving and building out and creating new things. You know, because that's the number one issue I face when clients want to do automation. It's like, oh, I want to build this big thing. No, let's build this little thing first. Right. <laughs> let's start here. Because uh, then you'll actually use it and do stuff. And you'll actually, then we can get you to that endpoint. So that iteration is super key. Uh, we we did an interview with uh, Balut uh, Kisik, uh, the VP of enterprise sales or enterprise marketing over at JotForm. Uh, actually, we just recorded it yesterday. Uh, so, and he came on and he talked about growth marketing and uh, that how growth marketing is really this concept of iteration. Uh, and it's, you know, it's uh, testing and throwing things against the wall, seeing what happens and just continuing to evolve what you're doing. I I think that whole concept is becoming, isn't just a marketing thing where I think it's really starting to permeate all aspects of business.
2: Yeah. I mean, I I think, I think all, Businesses, like I said, can be boiled down into problems. So I had a, I had a chance uh, to sit down and have lunch with um, a pastor that that is a pastor at my church. That before he was. Um, Into what he was doing, he actually was a producer of music videos. And so I asked him, I was like, that just sounds like the coolest job in the world. I said, what was that like? And he said, man, it's just problem solving. And that threw me for a loop because I thought, okay, if there's anything like making a music video is probably like a straightforward artistic process. And he said, no, like producing a music video is just as simple as you know, Hey, we're bringing everybody to shoot on this Hawaiian Island and Oh, Hawaii five Oh has rented all the camera equipment on the Island. And now I got to go find cameras. He's like, it's just problem solving all up and down. And it really kind of hit home with me that, yeah, like every, everything that you start, if it's a charity or a business or anything, there's always just little problems that you need to solve and your ability to solve them and not let you get overwhelmed by them is what's going to dictate your success.
1: Well, in the military, we have a saying: "The best laid plan never survives first contact with the enemy." <laughs> and, that's true. Uh, you know, and that's you know, no matter how th- much you think you thought about every permutation of what could happen, and it's like, well, if this happens, we're going to do that, and you know, we're going to do this, and no matter how well you have thought through it, the the enemy gets a choice. Uh, and in, in business case, you know, and I I always say, well, the, in our case, the enemy is the client. You know, yeah. The client gets a gets a say in how all your stuff operates and how they do things. They're not going to do it exactly how you want it to do.
0: Can we say that we actually love all of our clients and they're not enemies? I, I was thinking I like that. that, that is, somebody. Like, his geez, competitors, he just said the client. Our clients are our enemies. He's no, gonna, no, his competitors are going to take that, that, that on, clip.
1: I say that on stage <laughs> and everyone and all the marketing people laugh uh, when I say it. Yeah. So.
0: Um, The the client is the
1: enemy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but, you know, but that's, yeah, I hate you too. Uh, (laughs) 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 But, you know, that's that's a real thing. You know, no matter, even if you're employees, you you make a process for your employees, they still get a say in how that process is executed. And they're not necessarily going to react exactly how you think they're going to. Uh, So, you know, that that ability to be uh, really flexible and, um, you know, Semper Gumby and be able to move and adjust on the fly as things are happening is really super key. If you want to be in this iterative mindset and just keep trying and moving forward at a constant pace.
0: Hey, Donnie Bobine here, CEO of Success Champions Networking, and I just want to jump in really quick and tell you about the network. Success champion networking isn't for the beginning networker. It's for the business people that understand that building a successful relationships is a two way street requiring commitment from both parties involved. Stop wasting time networking with people that don't understand how to leverage their network to generate quality referrals for you. If you're ready to network with business people that are tired of doing all the heavy lifting and want to build real partnerships that generate high revenue referrals, Visit one of our chapters today at successchampionnetworking.com, and I look forward to seeing you there. Yeah, but I, I think most people haven't built that muscle to be able to put themselves or allow themselves to screw up or make a misstep or whatever. So, so Jared, how the hell does somebody get to that mindset? You don't wake up one day and go, you oh, yeah, I'm just going to go fuck everything up.
2: Yeah. I think it's, I think it's given yourself the grace to suck at something for a little while. Um, and, and it's a, it's a process that can repeat itself over and over. Right. I mean, so in my career, like I, I, I started a software company when I was in my mid twenties, it was a ed tech company called Proctor U grew to be the the largest type in the world. And we sold that business. Um, it you be, know, had a couple thousand employees, like really did some, some great things. And then when I said, okay, I'm going to start a podcast. Like I found myself right back at zero again and having to give myself permission to suck at something because it was brand new. And, um, that was tough. And if you go back and look at some of the early episodes of my show, it's a, it's a shit show, right? I mean, it was like, I'm all over the place. My cameras are falling over, overheating from sunlight. Like it, it was, but every episode got a little bit better. And I'm a big kind of like I I get motivated by hokey mantras and things like that. And so I I don't remember where I first heard this might have been like a David Goggins thing or whatever. But like I'm I'm a big believer. I'm about to put this on my wall because I feel like I need to hear it right now. But the idea of just better than yesterday. Right. Mm. Like can today doesn't have to be perfect, but can it just be better than it was the last time I did it. And if you can string a bunch of those kinds of days together, you're going to get so much further. For that
0: though. So, so, I mean, I get better than yesterday. Is it a feeling? Is it emotion? I mean, is it, is it, I mean, how how do you measure that today's better than actually yesterday? Because as I'm sitting here, I'm like, man, I've strung some really good days together. Then every once in a while I get the fucking right hook of a day (laughs) that just goes South, man. And
2: you know, so what, that's the question. What's the measuring stick? Yeah. So I think you have to be really clear in anything that you're, if you're trying to accomplish something, I think you have to be really clear with yourself upfront what success looks like. And you may change that definition as you go, but you know, if you're talking about, uh, success fitness, in the thing
0: you're trying to accomplish or success yeah, overall,
2: success in the thing you're trying to accomplish. Okay. So if I'm, if like I'm talking I like. about, if I'm talking about say a fitness goal, I need to have uh, you know whatever it is in my mind dialed in so like this is what success looks like and for me success in that has never been a weight loss goal or a number or anything it's always been getting up every day and doing something like the the process is really the goal and then the results come from the back end of that but if you are trying to grow your business you need to know what numbers am i measuring to know whether I'm winning or not and that's like that's another thing I see when, I, when I'm trying to help people is that they're, they're swinging the bat and they're not even keeping track of how many times they hit the ball. Well, you yeah, know, they're not they're keeping not track
0: because they don't want it to be highlighted how bad they're actually doing.
2: Yeah, but, you know, listen, admitting you're bad at something is the first step to getting good at it, right? I mean, I, how are you supposed to improve on something you don't measure? I, I don't know how to do that. I think you you can't. But how would you ever know if you were getting better if you're not measuring it? Like I, that sounds like a super nerdy like tape on the glasses and you can't be measuring everything. But like it really <laughs> matters if you don't measure something, you can't get better at it, or you at least can't prove that you're better at it. And I think that data is is the kind of truth that sets you free, right? And and there's a there's a I can't. I so many examples of working with organizations and they're just struggling and they're wringing their hands and they're arguing about whether they're making progress or what we should really do. And a lot of times it just boils down into everybody has a different definition of what progress and success looks like. And if we can all in the organization stack hands over the same thing, this is how we're going to measure whether we're winning. It could be revenue. It could be numbers of clients. It could be repeat clients. It could be, I'm just talking business terms, but as long as we all agree on, what that is, then you can boil it down into, let's do a little bit better tomorrow than I did today by looking at the things I'm trying to do. If today I made 10 sales call. Let's make 12 tomorrow. Right. Or let's make, you know, whatever. If the la- if you start stringing good days like that together and that's how you really move your, your organization forward.
0: Yeah. I like that. It's like uh, almost having some sort of benchmark to bounce off of, you know, if, if, if I can hit this bare minimum of my day, Right. That's going to make it a good day. But if I can go a little bit more than I did yesterday, now nah, that's going to make it this day better than I did yesterday. I like that. I like that that stick to jump over, if you will, um, because it gives you something more tangible to grab onto. You know, I started walking my farm, you know, in the mornings and it's been one of the coolest things I've ever done to go out and walk to farm every morning. But I've had to give myself some grace. Some days, um, to, uh, with the days I've chosen not to go out there um, for various different reasons, and uh, I think sometimes you got to be careful about putting very stringent things. You got to jump over or stringent things. You got to get done. I think there there has to be some grace in there. But there's it's it's wicked because sometimes if you don't have the discipline to do the thing every day you'll stop doing it altogether uh, right. because you break some sort of habit. So, so how do you navigate that? How do you navigate it to where you're like, okay, cool. This is what I have to get done. That makes it a good day. But some days I just need to give myself a little grace.
2: Yeah. You know, I don't know if you ever heard the, the, the rhetorical question, how do you eat an elephant? Right. How do you eat an elephant? Yeah. Well, you eat an elephant one bite at a time. Right. And if, if you if you think about a big daunting place you're trying to go or a goal or or something it can overwhelm you when you think about all the moves you need to make but you know running a marathon is just one foot in front of the other and you have to continue to do those kinds of things i think that you know in the worst moments and this this goes not just for trying to be successful in life this goes for like when you get met with bad news and tragedy in your life and when you get you get overwhelmed by something, you know, you take it a day at a time. If a day at a time is too much, you take it an hour at a time. If an hour at a time is too much, you take it ten minutes at a time. And that's like when I if I'm counseling people that are that are starting and they've immediately been met with this, the wall of issues that every startup, every body that's trying to do something great is just boom, there's a reason why everybody's not successful, right? It's because you get this wall of resistance in front of you. You break it down into what can I handle right now? Okay, I got to make this call to this organization and solve this one problem. Then I'm going to do this one. And then I'm going to do this one. And then I'm going to make this call. And then I'm going to make some sale. And then you just realize that after a couple of days of just... You know, row in the boat, you start to realize that you've moved further down the river than you would have ever moved if you just sat there and beat your head against the wall, upset about how daunting the, the journey is going to be.
0: That's awesome. I, I heard, uh, God, I think it was on a Tom Bilyeu podcast, and I wish I remember the name of his, his guest so I can give his guest the credit, but he was talking about this concept. Oh, um, uh, shit, it's the the vision doctor dude, uh, neuroscientist, uh, Huberman. It was Huberman who said this, and what he said was oh, yeah. there was a, a study that they found that goal setting didn't really work for a lot of people because they didn't actually believe that they could accomplish a goal in the first place. So he, they, they started going down the path of, okay, how do we really figure out how people accomplish things? And it was fascinating because what he said was that they focused on runners – and runners in particularly, when they run a marathon, they're not thinking about the finish line. They pick a spot down the way and they run to that spot. And so I started, he started you know, going down this huge, massive study on that if people will focus on the next milestone or that next target versus that end goal, Now you've got little boxes almost that you can check. Okay, cool. We got here. What's my next milestone? What's my next smaller step to get to that allows me to keep trudging forward so that the big goal doesn't actually overwhelm you, demotivate you, and the likes? And I I really like this line of thinking because – I've never been a goal setter, and I've often said goals don't really work, and it's because of the overwhelm. It's because of the, the, the demotivation side of things of, oh, I could never do that, and then I love this idea of having milestones or um, in older terms, in the slave days, they called it pick into the stick. And what they did in slave days is those cotton fields were just massive. And with those cotton fields being so massive, it was daunting. And this was a heroic and horrible thing for them to be doing in the first place. But the overwhelmness of picking those cotton fields, the head hand would literally grab a stick and he'd chunk it as far as he could into the, into the cotton field, and then they would pick to the stick. And so I love this idea of heading towards a micro goal maybe or a mini step along the way so it keeps you moving forward. What do you think about that?
2: So it reminds me of a when we were first starting our business, which is called ProctorU, um, what we did was we watched people take exams over a webcam. And we did that for colleges, and that way you didn't have to travel to campus and everything. And online classes were starting to proliferate. This is back in like 2009, um, and uh, we, what, what I so when we started this, I had like no funding. It was bootstrapped. It was we really were kind of hand to hand combat. And there were a couple other businesses in our space that were, um, you know had, had millions of dollars of funding and lots of effort behind them. And what they were doing was they would go to a university and they would try to win entire colleges, thousands and thousands of students at once. And they're making these big pitches and like, I didn't have the money or the sophistication to do that at all. And so what we did was we thought, well, What if we just went to individual faculty members, people that were teaching a class of 30 students, and their class was going to be moving online or or whatever, and we would go to them and we'd say, would you like to offer this as an option to your students? And we, I mean, we carpet bomb the world. I literally put a (laughs) backpack on, and we just you know caffeinated motivated and just talked to as many individual faculty members as we could and what happened was while these other companies were getting no 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 because the industry was not ready for wholesale change like that we kept getting small yeses and and this so this guy professor jones over here I got his 20 students and then I got his this guy over here his 30 students and this you know, professor, her 40 students. And next thing you know, you start stringing together some real progress. And these guys were up trying to hit grand slams with every swing of the bat. And we were putting together just bloop singles. Next thing you know, it took about a year, year and a half. Suddenly we looked like the bigger company because we had so many advocates out in the world and they had almost none because they kept trying to hit multimillion dollar deals. And so... I tell people that all the time. If you're trying to start a business, can you build momentum, especially if you didn't? If you're not fortunate enough to live in Silicon Valley and have somebody write you a a $20 million check for an idea, um, which most people aren't. I think real businesses get built outside of Silicon Valley, like we're out of La La Land, right? If you're trying to build a real business, then can you go out and sell your product? To an individual, and then do it again, and then do it again, and then do it again. Right, and those things stack up, and before you know it, that wall of sort of advocates that you're starting to build becomes, you know, momentum in and of itself. You don't have to hit some big deal; those big deals start to become more realistic when you have all of that, uh, all of those small wins strung together.
0: And it's like the movie Moneyball, dude. I love this. So uh, I I remember the first time I watched Moneyball and there's the whole scene with Brad Pitt and God, I can't remember the main dude's name, Um, but they're sitting there and the guy's like, you know, uh, base hits win baseball. And he shows this clip and the, the clip is this really large dude that's playing in the majors. And, you know, the guy, you know, never freaking you know gets past a single and he smokes one man just home run beats the hell out of the ball but as he's turned the base he's like man i'm usually only get singles and i don't have the speed to get to second so he thinks he only hit a single so he makes that turn man he falls rolls on the ground then he crawls back (laughs) to the bag right and the whole point was Uh, You know, people will do what they're naturally programmed and wired to do. And the guy's point was base hits win games. And so the whole idea behind Moneyball was if they could get a bunch of people who could just get on the bags – They weren't the best in the game, but they could get base hits. They'd win games, and so I love this concept. Because the same thing you did there, man. Freaking well done on on kind of the guerrilla marketing strategy to get in those campus, man. I love that kind of stuff because those are are the companies that truly win. You know, because you get to meet the people, you get to engage with the people, you get to hang out with them and you form relationships that are most likely even beyond that of a client, you know, company type relationship because, you know, especially in a grassroots like that, they're the early on endeavors. I, You know, um, most people don't have that tenacity, though, to sling on a backpack and and go hustle their way into campuses and universities did, was that something you just thought up on your own or was well, it? Well, no, I mean, we were it, out was, of options.
2: It, it was, it was, yeah. I mean, look, when I was in my late twenties, this is, this is like, you know, Oh nine, Oh eight. So we, the, the country's just hit a recession. Um, I had read a lot of, you know, magazines and and stories and articles and things about like, Facebook and Instagram and, you know, Ooh, MySpace and like the guy, all the, all these little websites that had, had created traction. And there was just, I wanted to be like those guys. Like I, I wanted to be able to, to put something out and then it just catch fire like that and then go to somebody who had lots of money and lots of resources and say, let's scale this. And that was not available to me in a recession in alabama where i was right it just it wasn't going to happen and so we and i tried like we i went all over the country trying to raise money for this and it never worked and there's a there's one particular venture capital firm that i wish i could call them out and tell them how wrong they were but i can't even remember their name that's how it's but they (laughs) were going to make a investment in us they actually started to see it and for like uh, they were going to spend, I think, two million bucks or something like that, and they were going to own half the company, right? And and we would have taken it at that moment because we were so small. And they, uh, at the last minute, they go, "You know what? I don't see it. Like, I don't, I'm mm. not I just don't see enough traction." Now, that um, two million dollars, had they made that investment and stuck with it for 14 years, uh, like I did, would have been worth 250 million dollars. Um, but they didn't and they missed and and I'm glad they didn't because that kind of money early on likely would have made me lazy. Right. And or or not forced me to get down in the weeds and really understand why people are buying this. And so we didn't, we didn't actually raise venture funding. You know, we, we started in 08. I don't think we closed our first round until 13. So it was five years of just, lost in the woods, you know, with a backpack on and just stringing together wins and looking at each other and going, this is good, right? This is good, right? You know, and <laughs> nobody really there validating us. And, you know, I, I, people ask me all the time, like, how do you raise venture money? And it's the only way I know how to do that is you have to get to a place where you no longer need the money. And mm. then people start beating your door down. If you, if you, um if you are trying to raise money so that you can figure your business out no one is going to write that check that has any sort of level put of it ex- this way one uh, time nobody wants to pay your paycheck right right Everybody, what, what people want to do is they want, and this is an extreme example, but they want to find a business who just closed a massive deal with Walmart and literally needs 300 grand to go unlock $10 million worth of sales, right? Yeah. Because they've already got a paper in hand. And so, you know, you're never ever usually going to get it that specific, but you know, we didn't close, um, a venture deal until we were talking to people and there was this group out of Huntsville, Eastside Partners. Go look them up if you're if you're looking for a great set of venture groups um, that can help you you know scale your business. They but they were talking to us and they're kind of scratching their heads, going, "Nobody on this team has ever done this before. Like, who are these guys?" And then while we were talking to them, we just hit like the, one of the biggest deals we ever had, and we just didn't even need their money to make it happen. We're just making it happen, and they were like, "Okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. Where do we sign?" Right, and so. <laughs> but you have to i mean there's a the whole thing about be so good they can't ignore you it's just yep. really the truth but it's it's about um you know going back and figuring out giving yourself the grace to be bad at something and then getting better and we were we used to sort of refer to us as kind of like the bad news bears and trying to figure out how do we how do we turn into the yankees you know and uh and we and we eventually got there but not without several years of you know what i would look back now on and be sort of embarrassed at like our level of professionalism or what our marketing looked like or or everything else but it was the best we could do at that time and we did it and we just kept getting better
1: well, and I've worked with a couple tech companies that did the were a funded startup where they had some cool ideas that someone's like, yeah, I'll give you a couple million dollars to go build it. And what you said about you know for them, it's almost like they had the easy button. It is because they they just try to hire people to figure the stuff out. You know, yeah. oh, we'll hire this marketing person to figure out branding and to figure out our personas and who we should be targeting instead of actually going out and doing a way. You know, Donnie and I both started our companies was going out and selling the concept to someone and saying, "Oh crap, people actually buy this," and then listening to your clients and what they actually want and what they need you to do for them, yes. uh, and that—that's how you figure out how to sell. You know, we have this conversation with business owners all the time. They're like, "Oh, you know, I need more revenue. I, I got to go hire salespeople." We're like, no, you—you you need just to get off your ass and go sell because. Yes. If you hire salespeople and they come in and you ask, they ask you, hey, I just met with Jared and he said this. What do I do? You're not going to have a fucking clue. And you're right. not going to be able to. Help them close the deal. you would be like, "Well, I, I don't know. I've never sold my product," and you're going to be a. It's not going to work. So you know that money is really key because you know there's some really, especially in the tech world, the operational expenses can go really high, really fast. But some of the stuff you have to go out and do yourself. You got to get you know, as Donnie says, get punched in the face a few times and learn.
2: Yeah, I mean money. Money can money should be looked at as gas in the tank and not the wheels on the car. Right. You've got to Mm. build the car yourself. And then the money is the gas that makes it go. But it's not going to it's not going to actually build the infrastructure and things. You've got to figure out ways to do that where the money is just a part of the equation. And um, I mean, you get you get unsophisticated. People in the startup bro world, like all the startup bro world, because it's like the guys with the blazers and the snarky t-shirt on, and they're like, yo, bro, I'm crushing it, and you know, bro, I'm crushing it, bro. (laughs) And like those guys um, will equate investment dollars to revenue. And like receiving an investment from a large venture capital firm is akin to a win for them. And I'm like, no, buddy, that is you just punched your ticket. Now you're in the game, but that's it. And guess what? Those dudes want their money back. And, and you know, you hear, it, it, I, I think like Silicon Valley culture probably did a lot of good and a lot of damage. Like it's a little bit of a mixed bag to sort of the whole overall entrepreneurship community of of, of America yeah. because... You get guys like, I think his name is Kevin Systrom, the guy that started Instagram, right? And Instagram launched in its form where it's, we're going to do photos and here's what I have for lunch or whatever, the hell, you know? And that thing went from launch to billion dollar sale to Facebook in 18 months. And that is like getting struck by lightning five times in a row, you know? Um, it's just those situations skew the average entrepreneur's idea of what success looks like and what you should be aiming your business towards. And um, it doesn't really give people the sense that they're supposed to build and iterate and build a real business that has uh, you know, sustainability that's, that's, that can, that can weather a, a, a downturn in something or a slowdown in sales or whatever to build real businesses. And that's yeah. what I've always felt like about sort of Southern entrepreneurs is, you know, I grew up in a very blue collar background and that permeates everything I do. And so hard work and, and being able to weather the storm is the way that I think you should build businesses.
1: Yeah, that, that investment is literally just, oh, you get to keep your doors open for another three months. It's, you know, right. it's, you, you get to pay your bills while you're working on figuring out how to actually generate your, your MRR, your monthly recurring revenue. It, it's not, I, I agree with you. And the people who think that, that, oh, it's a sale, we got a big win. It's like, no, you you got someone who believes in you and is now you get to pay your employees uh, go sell something. So it's, yeah, it, it's really frustrating working with them, uh, especially if they don't have, if they don't understand what their role is. So. Well,
2: I, if can I go on a rant for a second, by the way? Because yes, this is a rant please. I've always wanted to do in public and have never <laughs> had the opportunity to do it, even on my show. So I, the average person that is getting into the entrepreneurship world has no clue the way um, institutional capital works. Yeah. And so you read, um, I'm trying to think of an example, but you go, I keep picking on Silicon Valley, but go to any Silicon Valley situation. And when you read this story where so-and-so has invested $100 million into this guy's startup and you go, wow, 100, wow, how are they? Wow, he's so rich. Okay. Let me explain to you what happens in that. When somebody invests capital into your business, you have something very traditional that's called preference, right? And so if if I put $10 million into one of you guys' business, standard terms is going to be, I get a $10 million preference, which means when you go sell your business, the first $10 million gets raked over to the table back to me. Okay. And so that applies when it's a hundred million dollars. And sometimes it's a 1.5% preference, right? So it's one and a half. So if I gave you 10, I'm actually getting the first 15 back. Now, if you're still with me, I know there's a lot of bullshit there, but listen, what that means is if you have a startup and your business is somehow you've scratched and clawed and your business is worth $20 million. If you go take in $30 million of funding Okay. You now have to sell your business for 50. 50. Least. 50 to make $1 more than you could have sold it before you take that. Because if you sold it for 50, the first 30 is going to go back to the guy who just uh, made it. But oh, by the way, he didn't just do it for that preference. With that 30, he probably owns. 50% of your business. So now you're probably getting 10 back, right? Because he took 30 and then 50%, which would have been 10. So now you make 10 on top of that. And so that's why you see a lot of these situations. You see these big time uh, deals get built in the Silicon Valley where and it's $100 million. Uber is a great example. You, you had people putting $300 million to work in that business. That meant that you, you're, everybody in that deal was betting on that business being worth. Billions and billions of dollars for Mm. anybody to get a return on that investment. And I don't think the average person really understands that. And when you don't, then it, it you, you, go into your first money raise with a sort of a reckless mindset that you're just trying to get as much money as you can. And that's not, you need the, you need the money that you need. You need it with good partners and you need it to have good terms and it needs to well, make sense as you build. Your I business. think
0: there's a step before that even too. I, I, I think, you know, you first got to decide that that's the type of company you actually want to build. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people get into being an entrepreneur, starting their own business, because they don't want to be a slave to a company. And if you're not careful, and you're taking in money, next thing you know, you're going to be a slave to your damn company, because now you're beholden to these guys, they need a return. Uh, and by God, if they don't think that you're going to put in the time, the energy, and the effort, and the hours, uh, yeah. they'll straight up freaking take the damn thing from you, supplant you, buy your small portion out, and freaking take over <clears throat> your whole company. Um, yeah. I, I, I saw that happened to a friend of mine. I'm trying to remember who it was and the name of his company, but literally, he built a company. Uh, he took it to its first. I think 10 or 15 million. And then, you know, private equity came in, invested into him. And now he's completely removed from the company and he's watching it. And it's, you know, multi hundred million dollar corporation that he started, but has nothing to do with. Right. It was a forced exit. It wasn't a, a a happy (laughs) terms
2: type of thing. Those are challenging. I mean, I, the one thing to remember when you're raising money is if you're not, when you bring those financial partners on, don't get it twisted. Like you are now a, an employee, right? And you're yes. a member of the team or whatever. But like, I, so I started this business the moment we took in money, like, yes, I was like driving the charge and, you know, but don't get it twisted. Like I was, I was at serving at their, uh, at their pleasure. Right. And so, um, the way to not have that situation happen that happened to your friend, because I've seen it happen to a lot of people, um, the way to not have that happen is you have to make sure that you are absolutely aligned with your financial partners, that, that the, the, if, if we win, that we both get the outcome that we're looking for. And I was mm-hmm. the guys that I've worked with Eastside uh, and now Griffin partners out of, out of, um, San Francisco, uh, they own Proctory, What's now measure learning great, great partners. And the way that I was able, I mean, it's, it's not common for a founder to stay at a business for 15 years like I did, right? It, you just don't usually make it that way. And the, and the the reason that I was there that long was because I made it about winning and I made it about, it wasn't about me. I knew that the first line of my bio was always going to include how this company did. And so it really didn't matter whether I was CEO or janitor, right? It, it really meant about how the company did. And I made sure that my success was aligned with what they were looking for. And what you find uh with founders that that get shown the exit early is that those things are out of whack. You know, you, you've got a founder who's looking for significance and you've got a financial sponsor who's looking for a return, right? So you gotta make sure that you're on the same page and that your winning is aligned with what they're looking for.
0: How do you get your ego out of the way on that? I mean, because there's so many people, myself included, you know, that put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into building their their business uh you know, there, there, there's at some point that kind of evolution of, okay, I'm no longer the you're fa- no longer the brand, the company's now the brand, you know, now there's money being invested in the company, you know, how do I, how do you, how did you get yourself to a place where it wasn't an ego play? It was more about the reputation of the company and making this a successful adventure.
2: Well, I, I guess it depends on the stage that we were talking about. I, I'll talk about the ventures firm first, which was, you know, sort of middle of the way through our run. I mean, I, I remained very much um, at the tip of the spear when I was working with those guys, but there were lots of opportunities where, um, I could have let my ego get in the way. And let's all be honest. Like we all have egos, right? I mean, nice. I'm, I have, I have an ego. Um, but I think if you talk to a lot of the people that I worked with, I don't think you'd find really, hopefully not anybody, but I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that would say that my ego ever got in the way. And it was because I realized that the success of the organization that I got to sort of staple my name to was what gave me the, the you know, the clout in the room, right? And so I could walk in a room and I could try to dress and talk and act as awesome as I want. But at the end of the day, it really didn't matter. Like what the scoreboard tells you who you are to use like a sports analogy. And so I knew that the more this organization won, the, the more significance, what I said had. And, and I just sort of let the organization do the talking. And two things happen when you do that. One, your team, 100% will get behind you because when, when you're led by a leader who really is motivated by the goal um, and that the winning of the organization is what they get their cloud out of, not of like, I have to have the right answer. I just, my organization needed to win The, the right answer didn't need to come from me. Your team will really get behind you. And the second thing is you find that your customers can smell that and, and see it. And, and you can easily get trust from organizations that you're trying to work with. When they see that you're, you're just honestly trying to solve problems and you're trying to get to the right answer and you want to help them. And it's not about, you know, you being the biggest, best and baddest uh, of the world. It's a hard thing to do. I don't really know any other way to do it, though, because it's always worked for me. To know that if I if the organization wins and I've I've been out in public saying the organ I'm I am a part of this organization and I'm Jared Morgan and I'm telling here to tell you about Proctor U, you know, I knew that if Proctor U got bigger and more successful and did a great job, that me attaching my name to that was gonna have so much more significance. I don't know if that really makes
0: sense, but no, it, it, it does, does to me in my sense. head. Yeah, no, it makes a a, a ton of sense. And it's a a smart way of looking at it just from the perspective that if the company turns into a rock star, then the significance of the people who built that company turn into more rock stars um, in the eyes of others. I really like that. You know, as – People are progressing forward in life. They're going to come up against a lot of challenges. They're going to come up against a lot of different things that uh, they are going to smack them around, slap them in the face a few times. You know, outside of having a major goal and focus, you know, and maybe those little milestones along the way, how do you keep your mindset so much in check that because – we all know running a business, you're going to get to times of overwhelm. You're going to get to times of uncertainty. You're going to get to times where you know you've got to make the call that you don't want to make. You know, For you, how did you keep your wits about you and you know stay in that CEO mindset versus crumbling under the pressure?
2: Uh, man, I will tell you that I don't know if I ever got that all the way right. But I will say that looking back and sort of reflecting on when I was doing it better than others, um, than other times, was uh, to quote a friend of mine, Emily Lay. If you're not familiar with her, L-E-Y is her last name, uh, Emily Lay. Probably not the homies on your show. Probably not a big – she sells a lot of dainty girl. But she's a friend of mine. I've had her on my podcast, and she is a badass. And she said something to me uh, one time on the show that really resonated. And it was that if, when you, when you start to look at life in seasons, it, it, it slows down for you a little bit. And so you, you start to recognize that there are seasons when you were working seven days a week, 18 hours a day. And there are also seasons when you're, um, at a sports bar eating wings with your buddy at 3 PM on a Tuesday. Right. And, um, when you start to when you start to think about life and seasons, you realize that there's gonna be a season of your life where um, you're gonna have to be redlining on the engine. You're gonna be putting out so much more than you really think you could. And it's important to make sure that there's a coming season where you're charging your batteries. And those seasons can be months. For me, it was a couple of years, which was, I don't recommend, like I was redlining for, for years and it probably did some damage, you know, to my health and things like that. Um, but you sort of kind of get to you are where you are. And it's the people I think that burn out are the ones that don't take care of themselves. And they try to just think they can have their foot all the way on the floor perpetually. Um, so it's been it's been that way. It's been taking care of yourself, taking care of your health, taking care of your mind, you know, continuing to learn and read and be open to to learn. And then just remembering that for every nine months of pedal to the metal, I got to have I got to have a season, maybe not an equal season, but a season where man, I'm on a beach and I'm hanging out with my family and my kids and I'm being a dad. And, uh, you know, that those things are equally as important as as the hard seasons.
0: Man, I love this. Dude, we could sit down and hang out with you for quite a while. Um, we do need to figure out how to do a live cooking yep. show, bring Kevin and I in. We throw shit on the grill and I'm do it in. live because Kevin cooks his ass off too. So, um, so be a little I, do have,
1: I do have a cooking question. So, since you're from Alabama, are you an Alabama white sauce fan? Hell yes. Or are, are you not?
2: Dude, if, if the first Slow Smoke Business podcast, uh, branded thing that I'm probably going to put out is a jar of Alabama white sauce, because I have Attaboy. advocated it so many times on the show. You know, every region of the country has their thing. Yep. Texas has got brisket and like, you know, Memphis has got ribs and, you know, the Carolinas have got mustard sauce on pulled pork and there's just, everybody's got their thing. Alabama is all about chicken and Turkey, you know, poultry with a creamy, creamy, white barbecue sauce that i'm grew up in florida so when i moved here i thought that was ridiculous <laughs> but it is the way to eat barbecue chicken oh, dude, i love it in my opinion love yeah. it. so do i
0: and i want your white sauce recipe so because i got a bunch of quail that i need to cook up Ooh, so that'd yes. be awesome
1: or you go, just I've, freeze them and then we do the live show with Jared and we grill them Oh, I've there. got
2: plenty of quail. Don't <laughs> worry. We can do that. We can
0: do I'm that. Down. Quail is so good.
2: Yes. I've, nev- I've actually never done white sauce on quail, so that'd be breaking new ground.
0: Yeah, that's why I want to try it. So I want your recipe so I can give it a go because I've never had it on quail. So You got it. <laughs> Or turkey for that matter. I've only had it on chicken. So, Ooh, yeah, turkey Turkey, su-
1: turkey sounds really good. So, yeah, yep. um, just email us that recipe. We promise you got not to it. share it.
0: Oh, you imagine a freaking, this is so off the cliff for our show, but you imagine a fried turkey dipped in Alabama white sauce? That would be a freaking <clears throat> amazing.
2: Don't tell the doctors, but yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's essentially a mayo dipped turkey, but uh, sure. fried turkey, but yeah, special occasions only. <laughs>
0: Well, dude, thanks for hanging out with us, man. This is a lot of fun. Uh, and, you know, I, w- I wasn't expecting to go so hardcore down the VC route, man, but I loved it. It was it was fitting for the show and, and a great damn conversation, brother. Thanks for doing yeah. this.
2: Well, thrilled to be here. Just an old redneck that's been through some shit and ready to share some stories. So I appreciate you guys.
0: Go to successchampionnetworking.com, go visit one of our peer groups, and let's help you actually get to business freedom. Don't build your business alone. Come hang with us at Success Champions.